For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. We will chant the repentance verse three times, followed by our service, during which we will chant the uh, Metta Sutta. So let me share my the chants with y'all. Can everybody, can I get a thumbs up from someone, anyone that could, oh, awesome, thank you. All my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind. I now fully avow. Metta Sutta This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down. During all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness, we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to 
our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Ehei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills, and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world. Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings. All Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Maha Prajna Paramita. And um, I'll pass it to Taigen to, or maybe just directly to Hogetsu. Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Hogetsu. Thank you very much, Bo, for hosting us and leading us. Um, and welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for sitting and breathing together. Uh, I don't know if you can hear it, but outside my window are cicadas chirping wildly. (laughs) There were yellow finches in my sunflowers this afternoon and all sorts of butterflies roaming around the garden. So even though I'm in the middle of this amazing, large urban city of Chicago, uh, still there's nature. And this is, of course, land that was once the homeland of our Native American ancestors. So I pray that our our practice honors their memory and benefits our whirling world. You know, I know most people, but I don't know if you know each other. So maybe you could just quickly uh, say your name or not quickly, however you'd like to uh, offer your names and uh, where you're sitting at this moment. So I'm Hogatsu, and I'm sitting here uh, in the Lincoln Square neighborhood on the north side of Chicago, Illinois. Hi, I'm Nicholas, and I'm sitting in Winona Lake, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Greetings. Uh, I'm, I'm, oh, oh, please, go ahead. I'm Zoe, and I'm in Lincoln Square on the northwest side. And I am here, but I am just a disembodied voice this evening. (laughs) Hi, Zoe. (laughs) 
Uh, I'm, I'm Bo, and I'm sitting in the Edgewater neighborhood on the north side of Chicago, Illinois. My name is Karen. I'm sitting in Wheaton in the western suburbs, and this is my second time at a meeting here. Well, welcome, Karen. Have you set um, practice any meditation with other people? I've practiced um, previously. I moved to Illinois from the Washington, D.C. area a few years ago when I was involved in different sanghas there. Wonderful. Um, I don't know if you've ever sat with Imryu, Bonnie, at all means, Dharma friend. So welcome. I'm I'm Kathy. Oh, excuse me. No, go ahead, Kathy. (laughs) Hi, Amina. Hi. I'm Kathy, and I'm um, sitting in North Park, which is on the northwest side of Chicago, Illinois. Good to see you all. Kathy, are you hearing a lot of cicadas where you're at? Yes. Mm -hmm. I've seen them, too, on the ground, mating sometimes, you know, and I try not to step on them. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. I'm kind of jealous about the cicadas. Um, I don't think they're here. I'm I'm in Los Angeles, my and uh, a neighborhood called El Sereno. It's the very northeast corner of LA before it is not LA anymore. It becomes South Pasadena. Hi, Amina. Hi. I'm Yozan. I'm sitting on the south side of the border of Hyde Park and Woodlawn, in the south side of Chicago. Somewhere out here in the uh, wild world. I'm Tygen, and I'm also in Lincoln Square. There's a few of us. Uh, and uh, I was walking in River Park this afternoon, and there was lots of sounds of cicadas. Thank you for the cicada report. <laughs> How about in Hyde Park? They're loud here. They're great. They overcome, they overcome the sound of Lakeshore Drive when I'm lo- walking up the lake. Wonderful. I'm Matt. I'm in Minneapolis. Um, I practice the Minnesota Zen Meditation Center, and I don't hear any cicadas, just some birds. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. And Ed Donnelly is somewhere. There you are. I got rejiggered in my space this past weekend. I mean, my sound is messed up. But yeah, no, I live right across the street from Humboldt Park on the west side of Chicago. And yeah, they've gone wild, the cicadas. And there's a giant silver maple right across the street that had this bird convention in it earlier today. I don't know if you've ever had those. There's yeah. thousands of birds. They're all chirping each other. Like, they must be talking about something, but I, you can't figure it out. So it is it's toward the end of summer kind of energy. It's pretty cool. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. And yeah, with there's a bird condominium uh, next door in my neighbor's yard. And I actually, a, a, somebody who knows about birds said that it's like a barroom conversation, like, some fighting, some kind of, you know, people trying, birds trying to pick each other up. It's just kind of a wild scene. Um, so this is, this is where we are. Uh, 
So pretty much, I think every one of you has quite a bit of practice in your bodies and minds and hearts. So I I don't want to go into like too many words because <laughs> I'd like us maybe to have some discussion about this topic. But as some of you may know, I've been uh, studying and practicing and coursing in this ancient Buddhist set of practices called the four Brahma Viharas, uh, kind of loosely translated as four divine abodes or dwelling places. And I love this term Vihara. It's kind of a word that refers to practice place, place where Buddhist practitioners hang out together. Sometimes it's even known as a monastery of Vihara. And I think I was sort of attracted to these, especially as the pandemic was evolving. Because I missed having a practice place, a physical practice place. And I thought, oh, well, this is as, about as close as we can get. It's this wonderful, these wonderful practices of the Brahma Viharas or divine abodes. Sometimes they're referred to as the four immeasurables, the Apramana Titta, or the boundless, boundless hearts and minds. I love that boundlessness. Uh, so there's four of these practices, and I think their roots precede even our ancient foundational Buddhism of Buddha's time and beyond. Uh, and they're thought of a little differently as Buddhism has evolved, but you can probably Google these to death and find out all that information. But I'm interested in how they're, it's alive for us, how these practices are alive in our lives every day. Uh, so I'll just say the four. And I think it's interesting how they're kind of interwoven often into our practice. Um, for instance, we the first one is metta. And if you notice, we chanted the metta sutta which is basically direct source for these practice of the Brahma Viharas. So metta is a sense of loving kindness or friendliness or love or benevolent, uh, unconditional benevolence towards all. Um, so even in our Zen, we're bringing in this wonderful practice of wishing goodwill for the world. And I think we all might agree the world could use some of that at this certain point in time. It seems to have needed some of that pretty much at all points in time, but maybe for some of us, it's a little more salient uh, that the world needs some love right now. The second of the four uh, is compassion. Also, 
if you think about compassion, we think about Kuan Yin, Avalokiteshvara. We think about this being that regards and responds to the suffering in the world. Uh, so that's just kind of some images for you, which I'm sure you're all pretty familiar with. Um, but this compassion, this karuna, you know, being with suffering is a res- it's a it's a heart that's tender and feels the suffering and then wants to alleviate or respond in a generous way. Uh, the third one is kind of an appreciative joy called murita, and this is a a feeling of joy in response to the happiness and success of others. Uh, it's kind of the opposite or antidote to something like schadenfreude, you know, like kind of delight at the unhappiness of others, especially those we don't like. But this mudita is, I think, a very beautiful kind of practice. And also it can illuminate places where we might hold back um, it's also, though, kind of like metta, which is a response to suffering. Murita is a response to joy. So we feel joy when others are happy. Um, sometimes this is even this joy in practice is, is joy in response to the liberation uh, from suffering. That's another way that it's sort of been described. But I think just plain joy is okay too. We actually can have joy in our practice if we're not too intoxicated by it. But the focus for today is equanimity, or that's what I'd like to share with you, which is upeka. Now, I get a little nervous about talking about equanimity. But I feel kind of equanimous with that nervousness. The reason for it, upon exploration and settling with it, is that um, Zen in particular can seem cold, removed, indifferent, kind of withered, Uh, so I think that we have a practice where equanimity can be a danger, but it's also exactly part of our zazen. Like if you think about equanimity as a sense of being balanced, being in the middle way, having a lot of space, as a matter of fact, infinite, boundless space for whatever arises moment by moment. So this is a little more of what I mean by equanimity, not shutting down experience or diluting it or pushing it away, but really having a kind of space that's not trying to control, grab onto things, 
control things, manipulate things, space out. But something that uh, involves a peacefulness, a heart full of peace. So there's a tenderness to this kind of equanimity that I think is a keystone of our practice in Zazen and this Brahma Vihara. Um, I had an image of equanimity being kind of like a donut that gets soaked in the other three Brahma Viharas, but maybe they're also donuts that get soaked in equanimity, but they all get, they all work together. So compassion, appreciative joy, unconditional love, equanimity. They're sort of, they're in this kind of cauldron of our, our Sazen. Um, but just that warning label about equanimity, especially in times that we're in right now, because um, there's quite a bit going on in our world and even the world of cicadas that seem quite uh, agitated and painful and even traumatic. And so I worry maybe a little, or I'm a little cautious, let's say in talking about equanimity, because when you're in the midst of kind of a difficult, painful situation, Denial and numbness are dangers, but they're also healthy, normal coping mechanisms when we deal with things that are really difficult. So I don't want to disrespect them, but I think it's it's important that when we're thinking about equanimity, that there's not a, a falling into this kind of do-nothing zen or blissed out Zen. Uh, that do nothing Zen, I was thinking of Hakuin, who also has some great stories about equanimity, if you know who Hakuin is, but I don't know if I'll, I don't think I'll tell that story. Um, so, so it's good to study our mind streams and see if there's warmth and openness and a connected heart. I also think, though, that equanimity, if we're going to help the world, is uh, essential. And, you know, this kind of balance and openness to the world is, I would say, baked into our zazen. And uh, just to check that out, just go into uh, Dogen's instructions for sitting meditation sometimes called Fukanza Zengi. And there's a lot of detail about how to sit upright. And then it says, you know, this has, this practice has nothing to do with sitting or meditation, basically. So, uh, so what is it? And I think that's, of course, our good question. I'd be interested to hear your opinions on that. But I think it says something about this meeting the world with peace and openness and care. So maybe these Brahma Viharas are really, really deep and essential. One other thing I think about these Brahma Viharas, these boundless heart minds, is they're they're ways that we manifest the third pure precept, 
which is embracing and sustaining all beings without exception. So can be a tall order. Um, I could say a little more about, about equanimity. But I think you kind of have some idea about it, which is probably pretty good. Just don't grab onto the idea. But there is also something about a kind of deep uh, acceptance, kind of a courageous acceptance of the fact that uh, we don't, we can never quite know what's going on, that life is uncertain, circumstances are impermanent, no matter how much we care about someone, we may lose them. Uh, no matter how much money or effort we offer to the world, there's still suffering. And uh, circumstances beyond our ability to conceive them. And this is sort of right, this equanimity is this bodhisattva sitting in the midst of flames, you know, uh, and maybe willing to be con- consumed by them to some extent. Um, so we have this kind of Brahma Viharas, this recipe of loving kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy, and of equanimity that maybe we can allow that to permeate our practice and see what that's like for a while, just in case you need it to do something during Sazen, which of course, you're allowed to do anything during Sazen as long as you're not doing anything. So stillness doesn't necessarily mean sitting still. At any rate, I just want to share a couple stories of equanimity in action, because I think it's easy for us to think of equanimity when we're like sitting like Buddha under our little Bodhi trees or on our cushions. But I think there's a a more subtle activity in everyday life where uh, equanimity manifests or is cultivated. So I'll, I'll mention something I read that was kind of interesting by the Dalai Lama on equanimity. Uh, Equanimity is kind of a cultivation of our mind field, our Buddha fields. The Dalai Lama said this, after the mind has developed equanimity toward all sentient beings, it's very specific to all sentient beings, and I would put in parentheses, including our living earth and the virus that we call coronavirus, all without exception. So after the mind has developed equanimity toward all sentient beings, meditate on loving kindness. Moisten, <laughs> so moisten, saturate that donut, the um, mental continuum with the water of loving kindness and prepare it as you would a piece of fertile ground. So maybe it's not a donut, it's this Buddha field or this empty field. Uh, So you moisten and prepare this ground. And when the seed of compassion is planted in such a mind, 
germination will be swift, proper, and complete. Like, what is complete germination of compassion in this world, in the soil of equanimity, with moist water of compassion? Um, and once you have irrigated the mind stream with loving kindness, then you can meditate on compassion. Didn't say anything about appreciative joy, but somehow I think that's in the mix. It's fertilizer somewhere. So this is interesting because the Dalai Lama here starts with equanimity. A lot of traditional practice kind of end with equanimity, but there is a recommendation to start, which I think is kind of interesting. I actually think our zazen starts often with equanimity, with being balanced and spacious and learning to relax, even if there's a lot going on inside. So I think this is our, our family style of Soto Zen, where we emphasize zazen this warm-hearted, kind of stable, courageous posture. It's, it's a posture, but it's a bodily posture, but it's also a posture of speech and mind that's ready to meet whatever is happening. So I listened to um, what was happening in Afghanistan. And I was like, not sure if I was ready to meet it or not. Maybe there was an edge of equanimity that I'm exploring with that. Um, but nonetheless, there was an effort on my part to meet it and think, wow, how do we take all this in, in this world, the vastness of the world, with also so much joy uh, and beauty you know, the birds outside in their uh, dwelling places and our cicadas who slough off their exoskeletons and have a big party for a while. So much is, is going on. So always coming back to center. And that doesn't mean not to have to have no opinion or to appear that you're always like just this kind of upright thing. But there's a posture that's internal uh, that equanimity supports. I think if we're going to meet the problems of the world, if we don't meet them from this place of uprightness, I don't think we have a snowball's chance in hell of helping things out. I think it could be very dangerous. Um, I don't know about you, but how many times have you felt you were really being helpful and then you were like, oh, maybe I wasn't. I didn't really check this out thoroughly. So I think equanimity supports us in calming down enough and opening up enough. So I'll tell a couple stories of uh, how I see this kind of working in our tradition with Suzuki Roshi. Because somehow... During this time when we haven't had a temple physical practice space, I felt closer to Suzuki Roshi, who I never have met, than I ever have. 
Um, so I was reading uh, through a book by collection of little tiny stories called Zen Right Here, compiled by David Chadwick, about experiences in the early days of San Francisco Zen Center. And I thought, well, this is how Suzuki Roshi was teaching us about equanimity. So here's one. The Zen student, who I believe was in a prominent position, was in like, you know, Dokusan, complaining to Suzuki Roshi about all the people he was working with and what dodos they were, you know. Like these Zen students, they're like so spaced out, they don't know how to like chop vegetables or sweep the floor right or whatever. I know if, you know, anybody's ever done that, complained about a fellow Zen student. But uh, Suzuki Roshi listened very intently And I thought, this is really interesting, too. Like, I'm sure my sense is, at least, that Suzuki Roshi was really listening uh, to the student. This is part of equanimity, is fully listening with our whole body and mind. Not screening out the stuff we don't want to hear. Because, like, maybe Suzuki Roshi didn't want to hear the student complaining about all the other Zen students that he loved. I don't know. Maybe wanted to hear him complain and wanted to complain along with him. I do not know. But anyway, the story goes is he listened quietly and intently. And then he said to the student, if you want to see virtue, have a calm mind. That's the story. So he didn't say you're a bad Zen student thinking bad things about other Zen students. He saw this wish for virtue and goodness in the world and just encourage the student a little bit. So this is, this is, I think, sort of how equanimity percolates and how we might learn it from each other. Um, Here's another story. And I'm going to ask you maybe to tell some stories of people, you know, in your lives who, who brought this quality of equanimity. So this is another story of Suzuki Roshi. Suzuki Roshi's giving a Dharma talk, which were called lectures. And a woman came to the lecture. And at some point, maybe during Q&A, maybe she just blurted it out. I don't know. But a woman said to Suzuki Roshi, and said, you know, I've been rejected by a Zen teacher in Los Angeles where Amina is right now. Uh, And Suzuki Roshi told her, you know, if you go back to that teacher, that teacher will accept you back. And the student did not like the answer, apparently, and said, now you reject me too. And Suzuki Roshi said, oh, no. Suzuki Roshi said with sincere sympathy in his voice, you can stay here. And with his arms opened and long row sleeves gracefully hanging at his sides, he took a step toward her and said, I never reject anybody. So this, I hope that our Sangha, which I think is very open, continues in this tradition, no matter where we're located. But this sense of like, oh, 
And you could see Suzuki Roshi wasn't put off balance by her comment, but, but could correct himself and see, oh, she didn't want me to tell her to go someplace else. She wanted to be here. Okay, I can deal with that. Um, so I just feel very grateful that we have this tradition of a teacher that could express equanimity without giving like super long, boring talks on the Brahma Viharas or whatever. He did it in his presence by the way in which he opened to people. And I'm not saying he was perfect. I don't know. I never met him. But I think this is these stories are, are very contemporary actions. They're kind of simple actions in everyday life. And we can have them at a grocery store in the checkout line. Maybe if we buy a donut from someone, we can <laughs> express this. Um, and I'll mention one more. And then I'd like really love to hear from you about your thoughts and experiences of this kind of equanimity. So uh, someone was driving Suzuki Roshi back to San Francisco from Los Altos. So if you know how San Francisco is configured, Los Altos, there was like a, a Zendo at some women's woman's home uh, down in the peninsula, which became Silicon Valley. But it was a humble, I think, garage-based uh, Zendo. Not like the grand, you know, San Francisco Zen Center, I guess. Uh And the student who's driving Suzuki Roshi said, I asked Suzuki Roshi if there was much hope for the handful of middle-aged suburban housewives to accomplish anything as Zen students. After all, they only sat together once a week, unlike we Zen students at Zen Center who sat every day. And the student goes on, he said, Suzuki Roshi told me their understanding was, quote, actually pretty good, unquote. And he noted, quote, they didn't seem to suffer from arrogance, end quote. So this is Suzuki Roshi kind of bringing the student a little back to upright. We thought their zazen was like better than someone else's zazen. Uh, so equanimity isn't just being like, oh, I'm not upset because there are terrible things going on in the world. But it's this deeper uh, learning, learning, always learning, uh, kind of humble place of openness and also a coming back to center. So we we do this in our posture, but it's also our postures with each other. So, um, you know, maybe you can think of someone you know who had a level head or a calm heart during the pandemic, maybe helped you be a little upright. Or, you know, how does it feel to be in the presence of someone who has equanimity? Um, and where does this come from? So that's 
I'll leave, I'll leave you all with those questions and maybe you could share some of your responses, please. So thank you all very much. I actually, I have something that I'm thinking about. Um, I've mentioned this a couple weeks ago with you, Hogetsu, on a Thursday um, about the class that I was taking on the Israeli and Palestinian conflict. And I just finished it uh, today, actually, which was my last class of college. But that's not the point. Oh. Um, <laughs> um, but it's really interesting that you bring up the term equanimity, because it's actually perfectly in line with something that I think about both in regards to myself and also in regards to any global issue um, of dehumanization. I'm thinking of equanimity or a lack of equanimity, a severe lack of equanimity um, and like the reactivity in association with a lack of, and I was writing in my, in my essay mm. about reacting rather than listening. Reacting is contributing to the cycle of dehumanization because listening is what promotes humanness and connection. And so I've just been, I've been thinking about that a lot. I literally just wrote an essay about it. So I like, have I have an entire um, thing in the back of my mind, but it was really nice getting to, well, I love having that. I love having equanimity to connect with that. That's incredibly helpful. And I've previously thought about reactivity just in regards to myself, which was a really, uh, of course, like tangible uh, jumping off point and acknowledging the lack of the lack of equanimity that I have within myself. Um, and I'm very quick to react to situations that make me anxious and getting very frazzled and things like that. Um, and that's when I notice that I'm not listening and that's, um, yeah, I just, I, that, I don't know how to solve my problem, but I, <laughs> I, on paper know how to solve the world's problems but um yeah I, that's just that's me rambling but um I love I love learning about equanimity at this point um after when you first mentioned equanimity a few weeks ago it's I'm really glad that I got to be here to at this point in time I just thought that was um very serendipitous so thank you. <laughs> you know, it's just, I'm just delighted also to hear that you wrote this whole thesis, I guess, or paper, or whatever it was, and your last day of school, how wonderful we can share that with you. <laughs> it's very auspicious for us. Um, you could probably give a whole Dharma talk on that. A couple things came up for me um, around reactivity and um you know, in part of my life, I'm a psychologist. And one of the things you might notice if you sit sazen or if you talk about reactivity is that psychologists talk about something called a window of tolerance. So when we're challenged, did you write, do you know about this, Zoe? So like, 
you, um, when something triggers us somehow or hurts us, uh, the, the parasympathetic nervous system kind of shuts down and there's this like overwhelming reaction physiologically when we can't listen to anyone, we can't hear it because we're too physiologically overwhelmed and people who suffer trauma, that window of tolerance for things shortens. So they're overwhelmed very easily and then get very reactive. Uh, And you can imagine so many places that this is operating. So in some ways I feel like our practice as bodhisattvas is to just keep expanding our window of tolerance and we calm ourselves down So with Sazen, we calm ourselves. That's one of the functions. And then we can respond instead of react. Kind of like Suzuki Roshi, which is just like, hmm, you know, you 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 can stay with us. That's okay. And if you notice, people like that, uh, you know, they practice kind speech. Uh, about kind listening. So there's a listening where people feel really accepted, like Kathy's a psychologist as well. Many people who get into Zen are kind of psychologists. But one of the things that, you know, I've been doing this work as a psychologist for most of my adult life, and still I want to be a better listener every time. So so it's an endless kind of practice, and equanimity supports that. Um, and Zoe, I hope that you uh, you solve the problems of the world, and you can help us do that, and we can support you in that. My, I just wanted to say to my um, my final paper. My only instruction for my final paper was solve the Israeli and Palestinian conflict, and I had to lay out um, an entire plan. I just wanted to say so. I did solve the world's problems. <laughs> yeah. So, so I hope that the State Department is going to hire you for some assistance. I sure hope so. That's <laughs> a good word. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. These are big problems. Neozon Bodhisattva. So you may now unmute yourself. Oh, sorry. Was I, was I muted? Uh, I, I, anyway, hello. Um, Hi. Uh, going from the large scale to the, the to the smaller scale, um, I was really struck just, just by way of, um, I don't know why. Early in your, in your talk, you were talking about the, the boundlessness of the Rama Viharas. And I was um, reminded of the way that uh, Kaz Tanahashi uh, translated shunya, emptiness, as boundlessness. And again, I, I get this sense of unity of the tradition, you know, broadly speaking. and And that sort of led me to think of in this context of the Ramaviharas, um, 
know, especially, you know, what you were speaking about tonight as bodhisattva practice. And it was instantiated for me in a very, you know, not such a huge way, but a, a significant way that had a big impact on my day. Um, things got off to a very kind of rough start before nine o'clock. I had been uh, kind of um, put in the middle of two different sets of disputes that are floating around in my living situation and, you know, which made me uptight. And then somehow I got um, locked out of my email and that was like, Oh my God. And so I spent a couple of hours like, you know, going through these loops and getting nowhere, finding nothing and getting progressively like, Oh my God, you know, what a email, you know, I need to be able to talk to people. And, um, finally I, I called, I, I didn't want to do this, but I called Wade, um, who many of you know, uh, because I thought he might know something. And of course he does know things. But I have to say, the main way in which he helped in that situation was by his, he's a very even fellow. And, you know, he just sort of said, well, you know, and he just sort of kind of talked to me. He looked at some things and he wasn't getting anywhere either. And, you know, and then he said, well, you might do this, you might do that. And then we said goodbye. And in a much more even state of mind myself at that point, I did this and that, and within an hour, I found my way through this weird maze, and, you know, I have the email again. So that's that's not solving the problems of the world exactly, but um, it's it, it's I think it instantiates the way that through our um, taking these things into our bodies and minds um, and having them available, we can help others in significant ways in the way that Wade helped me this morning, which was, you know, not to uh, insult anybody's intelligence. If, if they missed it before, it was really much more about the, uh, the way he met my freak out than anything concretely he did to help me solve the technical problem. So I, I guess this is way maybe it's, Maybe this Brahma Bihar is holographic. Maybe it works at all levels. Um, if you're allowed to. Thank you, Nyosa. I love the holographic image because I was like, when you were like, well, I didn't solve all the problems of the world. And I thought, well, I don't know. Possibly, you know. Um, and, and so Wade's presence of not being freaked out, of being open and responsive and even, and kind. There's a kindness, and he listened to you. He didn't just say, oh, gosh, let me get rid of this person who doesn't know anything about computers. You know, not that again. I'm so sick of these old people not asking for help from young people, you know. But he just met met you, and that that calmed your heart. And so somebody has a question, Nicholas, so or comment soon. But so I just want to say thank you for that. And I think that, right, we don't have to be Gandhi or Nelson Mandela or the Dalai Lama. You know, you can be Niozan in way. And then you helped him like you you helped him bring forth his equanimity. So wonderful. Nicholas, did you want to share something? 
Yes. Uh, good evening. Hi. Uh, lovely topic, and um, it, it um, reminds me. I have a story. Um, one of the second retreats I I did in the early '90s was a ten day retreat with Joseph Goldstein and Sharon Salzberg in the in Joshua Tree Desert, and it was a Brahma Vihara retreat and. And I was so excited to go to this retreat and I thought, oh, this is going to be so beautiful and it's going to just be like we're floating. And and it was really difficult. It was a very difficult retreat for me because, uh, and I don't think this is uncommon, but when you do this practice um, intensively, it, it becomes sort of like a purification process. <laughs> Everything that is the opposite of metta or loving compassion kind of comes up to sort of be examined, looked at, um, cleared. And there are a lot of specific phrases and visualizations and techniques that, you know, you, one does when you really, you know, practice this, um, that it, that anyway, it just brings up a lot of stuff. And so I just wanted to, to, um, mention that and, and, but that was a long time ago. And so now uh, I feel like I, I use these, um, uh, the Brahma Viharas and, and the techniques um, often when I'm having trouble, you know, with another person, you know, like sending them metta. It's a, it's a way, it's sort of like Buddhist praying for me, you know, and, and also it's a way that I um, feel like I can, consciously um sort of contradict my own uh conditioning and sort of carve new grooves in my brain that are um um centered around the dharma or this these practices in particular um so i i find it uh real super practical um uh and if, if you do it intensively, it can be super challenging <laughs> in a good way. Like all, you know, doing Essachine is the same thing. It's like it, it gets intense when you practice in, in, intensively. And so, um, so the, also I loved your phrase about the window of tolerance because I, I feel like that is a great way of describing um, the benefit that I get from the practice in general, is that my window uh, just has become bigger and bigger, um, and I can tolerate more and more of, you know, what I don't want <laughs> to have happening, and and uh, you know, with a sense of acceptance. Um, you also mentioned Af- Afghanistan, and it struck me like, wow, I've really been pushing that away, and. I, I kind of feel like it's really hard for me to, to, to face, you know, I guess maybe it's the media that I'm having a hard time facing. You know, it's like everything's so, you know, just, I don't know, just, I was going to say belligerent. I don't know if that's the right word, but it's just, it feels toxic, you know, watching a lot of, of media. And so I, I, I haven't been doing that. And so I, I, I don't want to stick my head in the sand, but, Anyway, you just reminded me that, 
Yeah, I have. I, I, I haven't been really open to um, really facing the pain and suffering that's going on there. So, yes, may they work things out quickly, expeditiously in Afghanistan. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. You've said so much, you know, uh, just to make a plug for Sharon Salzberg. She has this book called Loving Kindness, which is the revolutionary art of of happiness. But it's sort of the, you know, it's a very nice introduction to the Brahma Viharas. And I, too, um, did some of that 10-day Brahma Vihara practice, uh, some of it in Burma. And, um, you know, I always say I thought it was a nice person until I start practicing. And then you see what comes up in the mind, but you're talking about also cultivating the Bhava Viharas in, in foundational Buddhism in particular, I think is trying to support wholesome qualities of mind and developing wholesome habit patterns in our mind stream. I think it becomes even, even less sort of specific. The practices are a little less specific in, in later uh, Mahayana or Bodhisattvayana practice, but there are very specific practices. Like, like I have these uh, equanimity verses that I've been working with for, you know, I don't know, long time. Uh, that's something like, may my mind and heart always be in balance. Everything that arises passes away. Maybe I be at peace in the midst of it all. May I experience the results of my past actions with an open heart. May I live life with an open heart. So so there is this acknowledgement of the causes and conditions of the world and uh, that reality. And I don't know, you know, Nicholas, I think that being aware that maybe your energy isn't drawn towards a feeding frenzy of news about Afghanistan (laughs) doesn't necessarily mean that you turn away. You have to answer that yourself, but we can look and see and equanimity helps us see how do we incline one way or the other. Mm -hmm. But there, there are very specific practices like these phrases you know, and often in this traditional Brahma Vihara practice, you start with yourself, like, may I be well, happy, and peaceful, may I be at ease. And then like, you kind of work up the ladder to your enemies. Right. <laughs> and, uh, you know, usually, there's some place there. And w- when you do it day in and day out, you also get kind of bored, like, you're like, I'm sick of these Brahma Viharas, man you know, like I'm sick of Zazen. So there are ways to kind of test and develop a little bit of a muscle for these, you know, kind of like get a muscle uh, for Zazen. So thanks for for pointing that out and uh, sharing your practice of that, Nicholas. Yeah. We've got many different ways to explore our minds and hearts. Uh, Karen. Thank you very much. I really just want to thank you for that image of equanimity as the donut that I can soak in the tea of loving kindness, and then it becomes um, fruitful. 
and helpful. Um, I think for me personally, equanimity can often sort of um, take me to a place of more numbness, shutdownness, where I get very analytically minded and judgmental, but I lose my connectedness with other people. And that's something that I've been working on, sort of really keeping relatedness in mind. And that image just really helps me with that. Thank you very much. Welcome. There's famous uh, women Zen practitioners who were donut sellers. They were donut sellers on the side of the road and Zen masters would come up to them and they'd be like, can I have a donut? And the, the woman would be like, well, if you can tell me what the meaning of Zen is, you know, or something like that. And they'd run away sometimes. Sometimes they'd share a donut together and a cup of tea. So thank you, Karen. So there's an equanimity donut. There's probably like, you know, there's all sorts of donuts. Instead of stands, we can have Zen donuts. That's how we can fund our new temple. Uh, Bryant. Thank you. Uh, I'm hearing your talks for the first time. I've been to other Ancient Dragon uh, events uh, but Tigan encouraged me to check in with the Monday night. So here I am. And it's, um, you know, I, I'm hesitant to say it was a wonderful talk because then that w- I would lose my equanimity. But uh, it was a wonderful talk. Um, and uh, I have just one little thing to share since just a minute ago you brought up phrases. Um, I have some phrases that I've used and I thought they're, they're wonderful to help shift perspective in a helpful way. Um, so it, it usually starts with compassion, but it goes through all the Brahma Viharas. And the phrases all start with, just like me, comma. And then you go through the traditional list. You know, like first you start with yourself, but then as you go with friends, family, you know, neutral people, enemies, you always start the phrase with the phrase, just like me, so and so wishes for the causes of condi- uh, the causes of happiness, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I've found that to be a very powerful way of really connecting, having that sort of equality of of self and other connection um, during the Brahma Vihara meditation. I'm so happy that Tigan. Uh invited you to Monday night so you could share that with us. Just like me, all beings want to be happy. Just like me, you know, um, there's something that reminded me of something in, in, I think it's, it's a commentary, some, some old sutra, but it says something like, uh, when you see people doing bad things, remember that they will all be Buddhas eventually, just like me. They are all Buddhas, actually, technically speaking, in our wonderful practice of Mahayana Zen, of our Buddha nature Zen. Right. So that's just like me. Wonderful. I guess uh, as a tail end comment, it reminds me just now of a magnet on my grandmother's refrigerator. Um, And she was interested in Buddhism uh, later in life. 
but she had this magnet all through my childhood and it said before you judge a man walk a mile in his moccasins or something to that that effect the whole idea that you know stop and pause before you react to someone's negativity or their actions towards you or whatever and put yourself in their place and see the path the process that they've come through to bring them to this moment and i think that can help us open up to you know the emptiness of our perceptions the emptiness of their actions you know it's all you know we're all sharing in a process and sometimes that process causes anger or other things um and we've all been there and and in the moment when we're being when we're the abused one or the the one who has something done negative against them it's it's almost natural to react quickly with the idea that well i would never do i would never do such a thing you know how dare they you know what kind of person are they forgetting that probably many times in our lives we've done very similar things under similar circumstances and i think uh I think that my grandmother's refrigerator magnet can help a lot with equanimity. <laughs> yeah, she was like one of those old donut sellers. I wonder if she made donuts. You know, but but this is also this teaching, right, of non-duality and of you know that we're all so intimately connected that we're always walking in each other's shoes. We just don't know it. Yeah. So Yeah. Yeah. There's a there's a psychological study that, and I'm sure you know it, uh, and in layman's terms, it says basically emotions are catching. And so when we walk in a room angry, we we can tend to affect other people's emotions and, and mind states thereby. And, you know, it's a real object lesson in dependent arising. You know, one angry person in a room, and pretty soon everyone leans towards anger in, in you know, in their tendencies. And similarly, like with Wade and Myozan, you just need one peaceful Buddha in the room and, and they can sometimes have the opposite effect. Right. Yeah. Wonderful. Uh, that's all. I'll... Thank did, you. Did you have anything else you wanted to offer? Oh, no, I've, I've I'm always sitting on a mountain of things to offer. My, my challenge is not to offer and, you know, and, and to let others speak. So I'm shutting up now. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Kathy. Uh, also, I noticed Nicholas had uh, his hands, and so I wanted oh. uh, for him to go next, maybe. Oh, um, no, no, that's a mistake. My hand is still up. It's... Oh, 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 okay. okay. <laughs> um, I was thinking about windows of tolerance, and that sometimes, like, how do I know? Like, sometimes I find myself searching for equanimity. And I know where I, okay, so it's not like I just naturally start thinking about these koans or uh, teachings and 
um, decide that I need to pursue equanimity. I get pushed to my limit until I am a little frantic and I'm thinking, where the hell in my life is there an antidote to this? And, uh, and that is taking a walk in nature or, or in yoga or in zazen or uh, in my Buddhist uh, readings and communi- commune with, with you guys. Um, but, um, you know, part of this right now is because, you know, I'm a psychologist too. And because clients are dealing with the same things I'm dealing with, you know, they're dealing with what's going on in the world with the climate crisis, with COVID, with all of the chaos around different points of view and conflict that it gets stirred up. And, um, and so uh, that's where my window of tolerance begins to get smaller. Um, and uh, right before, so an example of what happens to me is right before I knew I wanted to attend tonight and I, I was all of a sudden realized I went to get uh, a Buddha to bring into the room for sitting and uh, my bronze Buddha was missing and I, was, I went into a huge panic because it's something that was from the yoga studio that closed. It, I spent more money on it than I typically would. I especially like that bronze Buddha. And my mind started going to, who the hell stole my bronze Buddha? Uh, and I was just imagining all these things and getting upset and getting... Um, and, um, and so... You know, that's what my zazen was tonight, was brainstorming and trying to figure out how this happened or what happened to it. Or, uh, and, and then as soon as we were through during break, I ran and looked again at a cabinet and realized I'd stuck it in the back at some point. I don't know why. Um, and it was in the bottom of a cabinet. And, and I was like, oh, uh, I'm clearly spinning my wheels. Uh, and so those are the kinds of, I'm, it doesn't always go to that extreme, but it's the kind of mental crap that leads me to need um, equanimity. And, and then I, I think, you know, if I try to think my th- way through this, uh, you know, I, I realize I can be petty, I can be uh, small-minded, I can be... Uh, critical. I can be a lot of things that um, that I can't think my way through it. I have to step back and find a way to to lay it down and uh, just sit and uh, just be. And so tonight's kind of pertinent to me, and I thank you all for being here. Thank you, Kathy. I'm so happy you found your Buddha and you found your equanimity. Like somehow you knew where to be and then it just kind of happens, you know, and and I think that, you know, you're in early Buddhist scriptures, certainly Buddha writes tons about the mind that is possessed by all these kinds of thoughts and fears and unstable you know, and these practices are 
to kind of help us find our place, but also they are your vehicle for awakening. So the deluded mind is the vehicle for awakening. We just think they're two different things. So when you feel all that agitation, remember you found Buddha. <laughs> I will. Thank That's you. sitting in the midst of flames, Bodhisattva. <laughs> So this is how we support and help each other. This is our way, our tender, humble way of practice. Ed, did you want to say something? I wasn't sure if you rose your hand, if you put your hand up or not. No. (laughs) Okay. So um, thank you to everyone for your presence and your equanimity. I don't exactly know how we end this situation. Do we do some kind of announcement? Taiga, maybe you could help me. Um, um, uh the host bow will lead us in the four bodhisattva vows, and then there'll be some announcements. So, Bo? Yes. All right. I'll uh, share the vows now. Do we do a dedication? Like, may our intention equally extend? Is that part just, of it? Just, 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 just the four bodhisattva vows. Oops. Wrong document. No, that's right. Um, Oh, was it? Hmm. Yeah. Is this the right thing? Yes. Oh, okay. Great. <clears throat> Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.